Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power of Technology podcast by Dell Technologies. I'm Josh Abrams, and today's episode is the latest in our ongoing series focused on sustainability. One of the troubling byproducts of warmer, drier conditions brought on by climate change is wildfires. A recent Business Insider article referenced a study that found climate change increased the risk of fast-spreading wildfires in California by 25%. So far this year, According to the National Centers for Environmental Protection, there have been more than 58,000 fires in the United States, burning 2.6 million acres. While those numbers sound high, and the images we've seen of California and Hawaii wildfires have been awful, the number of acres burned and the acres per fire are down significantly from last year. Today's guests will tell us how the power of technology is being used to detect wildfires sooner, more quickly activate firefighters, and hopefully improve sustainability and protect the environment. Joining us are Arvin Satyam, co-founder and chief commercial officer for Pano AI, a wildfire detection startup, and Warren Jackson, a product technologist for Dell Technologies, specializing in edge gateways. Gentlemen, hey Josh, welcome to the show. great to be here. Yeah, same here, Josh. Great to be with you today. Super excited about our discussion today. <laughs> you and me both. Thanks to both of you. So, Arvin, let's start with you. Your background is in IoT and smart cities. What led you to create Pano AI? Josh, it, it was the summer of 2020. Um, I was looking and I live in San Francisco. I grew up in Sydney as a kid and the start of 2020, and I, I still vividly remember, it was the 31st of December, 2019. And there's this burning landscape where the eastern seaboard of Australia was literally surrounded by a ring of fire. And you see this visual on the front page of the New York Times with the kangaroo on a burning landscape. And some 30% of that area was entirely covered by uh, fire. And you had friends and family evacuated on beaches because that was the only safe place to go. Uh, I've spent over 15 years of my career both investing in new technologies, and I spent majority of the, the last decade before... Uh, uh, founding Pano, building out the IoT business. And really one of the questions I was asking among folks in this space is, is the latest and greatest around technology being applied to this exponential problem? And long story short, what we found is that the advances that we take for granted in places like Silicon Valley, you, know, you have self-driving cars, you have innovations that we're seeing in so many other industries, but unfortunately, a lot of what was being utilized by first responders, emergency providers who, who are dealing with an exponential problem um, really have not caught up. And so that was the genesis of really creating Pano. And, and at the heart of it is really taking advances that we saw in camera technology, Internet of Things, applying deep learning and AI, pulling in satellites, pulling in very different sources to really create that actionable intelligence. Okay, yeah. I mean, from what I've been reading, it just sounds like you've you've taken a really interesting combination of technologies to come up with this early detection solution. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it turns out that minutes matter. You you talked about the the magnitude of acres burned in California this year. And thankfully, this year was a pretty 
quiet fire season in California. Uh, but what we saw in Canada was 15x their historical average. And when we looked at the uh, the predictions around high fire risk for states in the U.S., Hawaii was not even in our top 20, right? Hmm. So you're seeing on those days when winds pick up and you have these wind-driven incidents and during red flag conditions, things can really take off. And early detection and providing that actionable intelligence with a triangulated location of where the fire is, providing you that hyper uh, visual intelligence of what's happening so you can more accurately and timely deploy resources. Uh, so you can essentially nip it in the bud. And that's at the heart of that strategy. And, and a lot of this thinking really came out of leading fire agencies in California, uh, Colorado, Oregon, Washington State, because they were noticing the way to really get to megafires is to make sure that you can detect early and follow it up by rapid initial attack. And we're seeing a lot of these states build up their deployments of uh, Blackhawk helicopters and others to do initial attack, but you need the initial detection. The way we do this, we deploy two cameras that are continuously rotating, ultra high resolution, and then we apply a smoke detection algorithm. And this is where we can leverage the advances in AI to train the model to detect smoke. And then at nighttime, we look at heat signatures. And essentially what we're trying to do is look 10 miles out and beyond and see the first instances of smoke. And what that allows us to do is determine, is it smoke or not smoke? We have human intelligence center that validates this with a goal of making sure that we notify first responders as quickly as we see it. They're able to get an incident report. Uh, in many cases, they're able to get a triangulated location of the incident. And then you have a whole host of stakeholders that are getting that intel. And that could be uh, city, county, local, and state, and federal fire agencies. That could be the utilities. That could be private players like forestry companies, ski resorts. Range of stakeholders need that intel. So we really designed that system to get the intel and then be able to disseminate it quickly. It all just sounds amazing to me, Arvind. I mean, again, you talked about, you, it was a great combination, right? You've got the the high-def cameras, you have the AI. Um, the one thing I, I had also read about, I was hoping you could touch on, in talking about these communications to these different fire departments, these different firefighting units, uh, would be the implementation of 5G. The, uh, absolutely. And, and Josh, the 5G part is a critical element of this. If you look at, you know, if in, in my past life, when I was thinking about IoT in an urban context, it, that was much easier to do from a connectivity lens, right? We go into cities like Copenhagen, Barcelona, San Francisco, you take any major metro today, uh, being able to get, get access to mesh networks and uh, high bandwidth Wi-Fi networks and uh, secure local area networks, that's not a complicated problem. So we can, we can rely on that. Um, so a lot of what we need to think about is be able to deploy this type of high resolution infrastructure in remote areas. And that's really where you're gonna get that um, early intel because there's not a lot of people around and that's where you wanna do it. So we spent a lot of time thinking about the, the hardware complexity uh, and there's been a bunch of stuff that we did in terms of how we design the system itself that allows us to leverage cellular networks and as 5G connectivity expands, and we have a very close partnership uh, with Dell in terms of 
uh, the, the gateways that we're using, but we also have a very close national partnership with T-Mobile as they're expanding their 5G footprint. A, many of the areas that we're deployed on are cell tower infrastructure, which turns out to be great locations for this because they're designed to have similar characteristics. We are on high vantage points, local maximums that look down on high fire risk areas. And so being able to get 5G connectivity allows us to have that resilient high bandwidth connectivity that we can trust. So we're able to get the imagery, we're able to do our machine learning so that we're able to then send these alerts out in a timely fashion. Yeah, that all just, again, just sounds amazing. Just a, a really great sounding solution and, and hopefully very effective. Uh, now, Arvin, you had mentioned a couple of examples of where these solutions are deployed, uh, you know, government, fire authorities, uh, you talk a little bit more about about uh, where those where where else those solutions are deployed. Yeah, uh, Josh, it's been it's been a, uh, a very frenetic pace in terms of scaling on this. Uh, we're a company that's uh, started a little over three years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I think what we've seen during that time is the the demand has intensified across the board, and I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Um, you have wildfires that are starting in, historically, you would look at states like California and Oregon and Nevada, et cetera, but we're seeing a heightened activity as you start getting into the Midwest. And, and then you look at a place like Canada, right, uh, where April was the hottest month on record that they've had. And, and you're looking at a situation that's 15x. So now where we are today is we are in eight states in North America. Uh, we have the largest network of cameras deployed in, say, a state like Colorado, in Washington State. Uh, it, we're in California. We're in Oregon. We're in uh, also launched in Texas, uh, Montana, Idaho. And then uh, we're in five states in Australia. And then we also launched in Canada in partnership with Rogers and BC Wildfire. Okay. And, and the other thing that might be useful is in terms of the, the end users, as well as the varied set of customers that we're working with, in terms of end users, I would say it's a cross-section of first responders and emergency providers that need to get this capability. And you'll find that when there's a major incident, that is a combination of federal, state, local, local, it could be county, it could be city, uh, it could be sometimes a correctional facility and others. It's all hands on deck to really go help put that incident out. But the other stakeholders that we're working with are uh, private players. And this could be utility companies that need to get intelligence on where's the fire relative to the communities that they're serving, to infrastructure so that they can think about how do they de-energize potentially? Uh, how do they think about risk to their assets? How do they think about risk to their personnel that may be in the field? Uh, similarly, forestry companies, their asset is the timber, their asset is trees, and they want to get early intelligence on that. Um, another area where we're seeing a lot of traction, and we're up in a lot of really interesting ski resorts. Um, and, you know, for, for me, as somebody who loves the outdoors, being able to protect the environment, being able to protect some of the things that we cherish has is, is been a really important part of this journey. And now we're in about eight ski resorts, ski resorts like Big Sky, Telluride, uh, Yellowstone Club, and that that uh, list continues to go very quickly. 
Okay, and part of my ignorance here a little bit, Arvind, you know, we talk about these ski resorts, you know, I'm picturing snow and ice, cold weather. <laughs> like, um, I'm assuming that the ski resorts more about the off season when, when again, we, we're hitting these dry conditions. Well, what's interesting is, so Josh, as, as somebody who grew up in a drier climate like Australia, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I would think that winter is where all the action is. But in many of these ski resorts, <laughs> it's a combination. Right. The summers are just as busy as the winters. Mm -hmm. And frankly, first and foremost, the resort is the asset. The mountain is the asset. And there's a very unfortunate uh, incident in Sierra at Tahoe where 70 percent of the resort burnt down. And this happened three years ago. And they're still um, in the process of building it back up. And, and this is incredibly unfortunate for the, the economic infrastructure uh, locally, but also on a year where you had one of the best snowpacks in history, you know, you're just not able to op open your operations. So a lot of this is about, first and foremost, protecting the mountain and the environment. And then secondly, we hear from many of the folks that are there during summer, uh, these areas are blanketed by smoke. So it's really hard to go hiking and mountain biking and, and spend time in the outdoors when air quality becomes such an issue. And we hear this consistently as we think about states like, uh, obviously, California, uh, but states like Colorado, Idaho, mm -hmm. Montana, et cetera. Yeah, I'm totally getting that. I uh, fortunately, fortunately, I was able a few summers ago to vacation in Breckenridge during the summer. And uh, just beautiful and gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. gorgeous place. And uh, I just, uh, between, you know, you're already short of breath due to the you know due to the altitude. I can't imagine then also dealing with smoke and and you know having those kind of air quality problems. Yeah, I mean at eleven thousand five hundred feet, Josh, that mm -hmm. can get very tricky. <laughs> okay, so now you did mention you know this you know almost catastrophic issue with that ski resort, but can you give a couple of examples where? this Pano solution has changed the outcome of a, of a forest fire or a, some kind of catastrophic issue? Happy to do so. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is uh, when we, one of the first um, major incidents that uh, we saw when we were getting out of the gates. And this is, uh, we were deployed in Big Sky, Montana. And this is one of the highest locations that we've deployed. We're on top of Lone Peak. So it's 11,300 feet off the ground, literally bird's eye view. And there was a fire, it was a Shedhorn fire that started around uh, close to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And it started in a really remote area. And the environment at that point was already covered with a lot of haze and smoke from fires in Idaho. So visibility was always tricky. Uh, there's only around 3,000 people. And we were the first to detect it we picked it up through AI. And what's really interesting is that we notified the local stakeholders. That included the resort that we're working with, the Big Sky Fire Department. They saw it and they quickly realized that this was an, this was an incident that could spread into a mega incident. They immediately sent that incident report to Bozeman to accelerate initial attack. And they were able to get aerial resources on the incident very quickly. And that was one of the main things that allowed that incident to stay under 100 acres. So that was thankfully contained to 74 mm -hmm. acres. The other thing that we saw through that experience is that um, they were able to use the technology, the mapping functionality, et cetera, 
to help navigate engines into these really remote areas. A lot of the time when you're getting calls, a 911 call, uh, some, so it could be a hiker, it could be somebody on the freeway, they're just going to call it in and say, Josh, I see smoke kind of in 30 degrees to the right of me. It's very hard to figure out where the base of that incident is, roughly wh where it is and be able to navigate. So that was something else that came up. Um, second one that I want to call out is this year, while California had a fairly quiet season, we saw a lot of red flag activity in states like Oregon and Washington. Uh, and in the case of Oregon, I remember it was 3rd of July, just heading into 4th of July, long weekend uh, with fireworks activity, et cetera. It's, it's always an area where the fire community is on heightened alert. Our intelligence center is on heightened alert. Mm -hmm. uh, we picked up this incident and it was called the Kutch Fire. We picked it up. We notified to our range of stakeholders, which included the, the fire agencies, the utility, um, the, the utility teams. We picked it up and notified almost 15 minutes before any 911 call came in. Hmm. And, and at that point, it was over 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, the winds had started to pick up and it was low relative humidity. So the environment was very combustible. And so we gave a 15 minute advantage to just any call coming in and almost a 19 minute advantage. So the first specific call that came in was 19 minutes later. By that stage, the visibility, the visuals, the location uh, just fundamentally made a difference. And we heard from the fire community and the leaders on the ground that those minutes made a big difference. And they, if they didn't have that intel, they could have been dealing with that incident days later. And and they were able to contain it to two acres. Right. And as you said, right at the top, right, every minute counts. Just amazing. What a great jump start on that. Um, Arvin, well, I just want to go back really quick to uh, the first example you gave. And I want to be sure I understood. Did you say that um, that the AI picked up on the fire, the smoke from the fire, and was able to distinguish it from existing older smoke? Yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up. So, Yes. So short answer to your question is yes. And how we do that is we've trained the model with over 300 historical images, 300 million historical images. And then it's continuously being trained on all of our deployments in different environmental conditions. And the AI is trained to look for smoke in a smoky area, in an area with fog, in an area with snow. And it's just going to continue to get better than that. And so one way to distinguish it is the AI is looking for texture. It's looking for movement. It's looking for gradient. Turns out that when you've got smoke sitting in, sitting on the horizon, that's kind of smoke that's not moving. And then if you've got a plume of smoke that's shooting up, that has a very different characteristic. Now, the visibility is not going to be that high, which is why you need that high resolution imagery and you need that connectivity that you can really rely on but the AI is really designed to pick up smoke when there's smoke in the air. It just blows my mind. That's just amazing that technology has come this far. And I, again, just to go back to an earlier point you made, uh, there's also a human component to this, right? Like AI does all this work, but there's still humans that are reviewing all this before the calls go out to uh, the first responders. And, and that's, a, that's been a really important step. Uh, AI has been tried. So it turns out that we weren't the first to think about AI applying to high resolution imagery and then really sending out alerts. There's been many academic attempts that have been tried on this. And there was one famous one in 2018 
in Marin County. And I think it was spitting out 40 false positives a day. And you could just imagine rolling out 40 trucks every single time you got an alert. And so one of the first things that we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that when we send the notifications out, we have a high degree of confidence and that we avoid sending out noise, right? And you also don't want to tune the model to just be 100% sure all the time. What we hear from stakeholders is if you believe it's risky, we want to know ahead of time, right? Um, but where the intelligence center comes in is they're able to quickly make sure that that's not a farmer going down a hill, kicking up a dust cloud. Or uh, in the case of a ski resort, that, that could be a snow machine or a cement factory that's emitting smoke. So these are all the things that the Alice are quickly able to eliminate. Okay, well, again, it's, it's really great the technology advanced to the point because it sounds like in that earlier example, uh, you know, it's like crying wolf, right? Like sooner or later, people have lost faith in, in the accuracy and they're not going to accept that solution. T totally, and I think at that point, we would just tune it out. And mm -hmm. so we saw that as, as we thought about kind of the foundational elements that we wanted to get right, that was just really at the heart of it. Okay, so now let's pivot a little bit and talk more about the technology, you know, the the solution itself. And I understand you're using the Dell Edge Gateway. We are, and so the the Edge Gateway is a key part of it. We've got two cameras that are connected to the Edge Gateway. The cameras are continuously rotating. They're taking imagery. Uh, all of this gets then sent over to the cloud where we apply the AI algorithm. And as we looked at a partnership, uh, the reason why we, we landed on Dell in this case is we were looking for a player that really has those characteristics that were important. We're deploying in remote environments that are hardened, that, that are exposed to the elements. And when I say exposed to the elements, you could, you could be in the outback where it's uh, 130 degrees Celsius all the way to minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit right, on, on mountaintops. So being ruggedized, being resilient. Uh, and also the, the other thing that was really important to us was working with Dell as a partner and as a team and as a brand that's committed to uh, sustainability and, and working on solutions like this. Can you tell us, you know, any, out of all, you know, out of all these different features, uh, what made you choose the Dell solution, the Dell gateway uh, for, the, for your overall solution? I, I think for us, it's it's a combination of the uh, overall specification, the ruggedized element of it, the scalability. And, and I think over time, you know, we talked about uh, where we are as a company and where, where we expect this to go. Uh, we certainly are experiencing a lot of demand and a, and a pull from many more places for us to scale towards. And I think... Um, working with a large player that has a global footprint just gives us more possibilities. And, and I know um, Warren's gonna jump in on this, but uh, the team just really appreciates the, the partnership as well. Okay, thanks Arvin. And yes, Warren, finally, <laughs> let's pull you into the conversation. You've been so patient. Um, so we just heard from Arvin how the Dell Edge Gateway is used by Pano and why they chose it. Can you give us some examples of other places and uses for the Edge Gateway? Yeah, Arvin should come work for Dell. He told, he told the value <laughs> proposition of Dell better than I could do. Hey, I, I, I had a really good friend, Rolla. Uh, Rolla was working at Dell for a while. Yeah, so he hit on a lot of the 
kind of key value propositions that we talk about with these edge gateways. The biggest one, I guess, being a lot of these kind of AI applications that are deployed at the edge, it's mainly about early detection and early warning. So you put a, a compute device out in the field, it's um, interfacing to southbound sensors. In this case, the sensor is a camera and then acting on that data either at the edge or up in the cloud and then sending it to somebody who can take action um, to be um, uh, responsive to that. So rather than being reactive to the crisis, you're being proactive to the crisis. Um, and that's really you know, a common theme that we see in a lot of these app edge applications uh, with the gateways. So the ruggedness, the 5G connectivity, um, the interfaces to the gateway are all super important in these kind of applications. Okay, so yeah, I'm hearing the ruggedized, the data collection, 5G. Um, any other features that you would say are most valued by customers or anything that is unique for the Dell Edge Gateway? Yeah, so we started in our discussions with Pano around the, the bits and the bytes of it, like the technical features. We wanted to make sure we could check all the boxes that it would you know, kind of replace their existing device. And once we were able to do that, we quickly pivoted to the commercial piece of it um, and the scalability. Because as Arvin said, they're growing super fast. So they need to be able to deploy these, not only in the US, but all over the world. So they needed, you know, there's a lot of players in the gateway space, not sure. many that are able to support the enterprise level scalability that Dell has and what I call that Dell goodness that, you know, if there's an issue or, you know, they need support, Dell has global um, support capabilities. Um, if we, you know, they need drivers, you know, all that kind of um, Dell goodness that we're able to offer. And then the last piece of it was the delivery because they have a very small installation window because obviously they can't install do these installations in the, in the middle of winter on remote mountaintops. So they need to be able to order, you know, whatever quantity they're going to order, 50, 100, whatever, and mm -hmm. have quick deliveries on those so that they can send their installation teams out to install these um, in their field sites during the warmer months. So the, the delivery and the ability to meet the lead times mm -hmm. um, at a scalable level was probably one of the biggest um, things that we brought to the table as well. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that would has come even more to the forefront since the pandemic, right? You know, the yeah. strength and reliability of the supply chain. Yes, exactly. Yep, put it well, supply chain. I, I, I just want to I, I add to that. Warren, I think you hit the nail on the head. The windows for us are super tight. And, you know, it's also, so you mentioned the winter months, but the other thing is we also need to get up during wildfire season when the fires are already on. Um, that's very difficult to get up at that point. You wanna get up in these tight windows. And especially when you think about the mountainous areas that we're covering uh, on, on a year like this year, um, there were some locations where they were snowed in well and truly into the middle of July, right? And we've got a very tight window to hit that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Arvin. Thank you, Warren. I want to um, switch now and pivot, I should say. Let's talk sustainability, Arvin. So um, 
How does Pano Rapid Detect utilize AI and connectivity to enhance the speed and accuracy of fire threat detection and response? Yeah, we we talked about uh, we talked about leveraging uh, that deep learning to pick up fires as quickly as they emerge, right? And a lot of what we try to do is pick it up in those early minutes. And it's a combination of pulling all this together. It's a combination of pulling visual intelligence, AI. But the other thing that we're trying to do is not just rely on one source, but rely on many different signals. So we also pull in satellites. We pull in other known sources. We use an intelligence center. All this is to say, you see it, you confirm it, you validate it, you learn about it, and really provide actionable intelligence on what that is. So you give more stakeholders the ability to learn and respond very quickly and allocate resources really effectively for it. Okay. And how does that contribute to more sustainable firefighting practices? Yeah, when I think about um, sustainable practices, I think it, it starts with, one, the impact that you're making on the size of the incident. Right. And so we talked a lot about suppression and we talked about being able to keep these large incidents smaller by being able to get to them quickly. So that's one aspect. And that's very clear. And I think we've we spent a bunch of time talking about how we do that. Another area that, that we're working on a lot is being able to help fire agencies really think about effectively prepare the environment. So do safer prescribed burns. Not all fire is bad. Right, we've lived with fire for generations as as a society, and it turns out that you can use AI and intelligence to give a lot of um, a lot of that visibility to do safer prescribed burns, and and we're seeing that where stakeholders are using this when burn permits are approved, they know exactly what's being burnt, they know exactly what is in that uh, the interior of it, they're able to keep eyes on it, less likelihood for things to take off in that environment as well. Hmm. Okay. And what are some insights into the environmental benefits of using the Pano solution in terms of reducing the ecological impact of wildfires? And how does that, how does it support sustainability efforts in protecting forests and natural habitats? When, when we look at the, the scale of um, areas that we're covering, this is in the hundreds and thousands of uh, acres that, that we're covering and you've got the ability, I, I talked about a number of incidents where you're able to keep them much smaller than where they would have uh, ended up. That has dramatic impact in terms of the ecology, um, the the plant life in the area. Uh, you, you have a direct impact in, in uh, some of the unfortunate incidents that we've seen where you've had loss of life, you've had loss of wildlife. And so these are all things that I think we take extremely seriously. We want to make sure that we do our part. We're, we're one of the tools in the tool bag, but we want to make sure that we're able to provide that so you're able to limit the impact on that. Something else that, um, that's that been pretty clear as you look at the Australia uh, Black Summer incidents in 2019 and 2020, and, and also the, the incidents that we saw in uh, Canada this year and, and in California in 2020 is the impact to... Uh, help and uh, just what's happened from citizens in the area be, just being uh, breathing smoke and, um, and and all those elements. So I think there is 
impact across many elements of this. And I think by being able to limit the size of these incidents, you have a net positive across the board. Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay. And what are you doing to ensure the long-term sustainability and scalability of Pano Rapid Detect and how can it minimize its own environmental footprint while assisting in wildfire detection and containment? I, I think for us, um, you know, we think about the the supply chain. We think about the partners. Um, we we look at, um, you know, we Warren talked about Dell and and their scalability and their commitment around this. Uh, we're also incredibly proud to be working with partners like a T-Mobile. Uh, like a Salesforce and others who, who are investors in the company. But what we want to do is we think about this as we are deploying in areas, we want to make sure that uh, we do it in a way that is a sustainable way. And we work with companies and we as a team, uh, we're mission driven where all of us, uh, we want to make sure that we stop the spread of catastrophic wildfires. And, and, we, mm -hmm. and I think that has been a big part of our ethos. Um, you know, when you're an early stage startup, it's it's a hard grind. But when you know you're you're waking up to that mission and you get calls from fire chiefs and first responders and incident uh, managers across the board saying, thank you so much, those minutes mattered, or you provided this intelligence on this incident that allowed us to uh, respond to it safely, those type of things just mean so much for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, they must be just incredibly gratifying. Uh, absolutely. I, I think I've never been involved in uh, a solution or a product in my life where that that impact is so tangible and so clear. Arvin, thank you very much. Uh, given how quickly wildfires can spread in remote locations, early detection and rapid communication are critical. Where can our listeners go to learn more about Pano AI solutions? Uh, Josh, first of all, thank you for Thank you for having me on here. And I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, your listeners can can just go on our webpage. It's really simple, uh, pano.ai. So www.pano.ai. And you'll be able to learn very quickly. And if you if there's interest, there is a uh, info page where you can click and we'll, we'll quickly come back and we can do a demo or we can just speak to you about your individual needs. Sounds good. Thank you again, Arvind and Warren. Dell's edge gateways are used in a variety of ways beyond wildfire early detection. Is there a one-stop shop or a first step you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah, uh, I would echo what Arvin said. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. We're super um, excited to be working with uh, Pano on this and uh, the best is yet to come, I think. But for the gateways, super easy. Just go to dell.com and in the search bar, search for edge gateways and it'll take you right to the product page. Okay, perfect. And for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Dell's sustainability efforts, contact your Dell sales rep and or visit dell.com slash IT dash sustainability. Also, be sure to contact your Dell sales rep if you're interested in being a guest here on the Power of Technology. Hopefully our guests today can <laughs> echo again that it, it's a good experience and uh, we're always looking for unique stories to share with our audience. And so that brings... It's been a really fun experience, Josh. Thanks, Arvin. I def we definitely want to have you back. So, uh, you know, keep your calendar clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that, uh, today's episode will come to a close. 
If you missed our earlier sustainability topics, be sure to peruse our ever-growing collection, including episode 87 featuring New York City's Billion Oyster Project, episode 90 on Netherlands-based Key Gene and their work on improving crop resiliency and quality, episode 93 on how energy efficiency is central to the product design of Dell's storage product portfolio, and episode 98 featuring Canada's Nature Fresh Farms and how they achieved unparalleled levels of sustainability quality, and yield in their crops. As always, thanks for listening, and be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service. I'm Josh Abrams, and we'll see you next time on The Power of Technology.